So it's May 27th, 2020, and the hardcover of my book, The Hilarious World of Depression, has been out in the world for only a few weeks. And I get a Google alert that my name has popped up somewhere. It's a link to a newspaper in Cleveland about a graduation speech, virtual speech, COVID just getting started, by Kevin Love. He plays for the Cleveland Cavaliers of the NBA. Quote, During and after his speech, Love referenced some of his favorite books, The Meditations by Marcus Aurelius, The Hilarious World of Depression by John Moe, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century by Yuval Noah Harari, and Range by David Epstein. All of those books have had a profound impact on Love in some way, allowing him to better understand himself and helping him learn how to cope with obstacles while living a better, more fulfilling life. Unquote. And I was all, whoa, I'm really brilliant and important. No, that's not what I thought. I thought, this is great. And also, what's Kevin Love doing reading my book? What do we have in common? Kevin's an NBA all-star, fifth overall draft pick. He has won an NBA championship, and I couldn't dunk a basketball if I was on a ladder that leaned on the rim. Kevin Love is much younger than me. He's very wealthy and famous. His dad, Stan Love, played in the NBA. Stan's cousin is Brian Wilson, and Kevin's uncle is Mike Love, both of the Beach Boys. My only uncle was a Norwegian cheesemaker. By the way, it's Depression Mode. I'm John Moe. I'm glad you're here. But then again, Kevin has dealt with depression, and Kevin has dealt with anxiety, and he's from the Pacific Northwest. And he's a human being with a complicated mind, just like me, and I'm guessing just like you, dear listener. Sure, he makes a lot of money. God, he makes so much money. But depression and anxiety don't look at your paycheck before deciding to infect you. They just do. Kevin Love, welcome to Depression Mode. I appreciate you having me. You've dealt with anxiety. You've dealt with depression. This isn't the first place you've talked about right. that. Oof. Yeah. When did that start for you in your life? Very young. I mean, I can, I can remember... You know, and it's funny, like I had a, a, a pretty good childhood from what I can remember, but I was always very anxious. And I don't know if that was to be like a high achiever, if it was to take care of my family financially because we had problems of that uh, with that growing up, or if it was, you know, having to be, um, you know, the, the, the golden middle child, if you will, and everything that comes along. Uh, with that, but I, you know, sometimes it's, it's not, you know, self-induced it's, it's, you know, hereditary. It's something that has, has been in my family, especially on the, the darker side. Um, and when we're talking about depression as well, I would just have, you know, moments where I just, you know, did not and could not get out of bed. It was very, very dark. And I didn't, I'm, I'm, saying that to say that I, I didn't understand it at all, right? Like, and I would want to compartmentalize it. I did not know what it meant to be vulnerable. I thought I'd be looked at because I was, you know, a, a damn good sports player from early on. I was very precocious, very ahead of my my time in that way and tall. And, you know, people, you know, younger kids uh, looked up to me, especially when I got to high school, a lot was expected of me. So I'm like, I can't, I can't expose this in any way. Other people, people need me, me to as, be this way. Yeah. yeah, other people are like that. And also like I would compare grief. I think I, I sometimes still do that as, you know, it's it's who am I and who am I to feel this way? There's people who have it way worse than than I do in this world. But like, you know, as you know, like, you know, comparing grief, but also withholding compassion, like nobody benefits from that. Not you, not anybody else. Um, and that was something that I learned the hard way. You mentioned grief. Did you lose someone? Well, I lost my grandma. That, uh, that, so that was my yeah, fifth year in the league. It's 2013. I'm trying to backtrack here. I'm heading into year okay. 15. So it all kind of blends into each other at this point. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but it was, yeah, 2013. It was right before, I remember it was December 4th, actually. And she, uh, she had passed and I wasn't able to see her before she passed. So I never, and she was supposed to actually come out and see us for Thanksgiving, not too long, you know, before. And that would have been her first trip to Minnesota. 
<laughs> so it was around the holiday and we that was when I always got to see my grandmother even when I was in the NBA was always for you know her May 25th birthday or around the 4th of July or for around my September 7th birthday and then those moments of nostalgia growing up and and you know seeing her for every holiday and her making you know her special carols pie that she would make and no it just she felt so and still feels so much like home so reflecting back on that was you know that that grief was tough for me until i had that very you know public moment and panic attack back in november of 2017 i i had started going to therapy and i was like wow i never i never grieved i never allowed myself to to go through that process and kind of reflect back on my my grandmother's life the moments we shared but also how much she meant to myself and 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 for my family your dad played in the nba and your middle name is wesley after the hall of famer wes unseld <laughs> that's right was there pressure from as far back as you can remember that that you're next that you need to make it to the nba oh yeah is that coming from you or from your family both and for even people outside of that and it's even worse now i feel like in you know, AAU sports or in travel basketball at an earlier age, everybody des- feels like they deserve something. Everybody has their hand out. Everybody wants something. Right. So these you're kids, the ticket. You're the ticket out. I mean, honestly, you're the ticket out. And like, it has me ask and, and beg the question, like, what would you have done if I, because anything can go wrong. It'd be a knee injury. Uh, anything uh, along the way can go wrong and set you off of that, you know, linear path that can be the difference in you know, not making it to professional sports. And also, even when you make it, there's no guarantee that you'll get to a second contract. There's no guarantee that you know it all works out. So you're basically putting it all on the line and putting it all on the shoulders of, of one person to be, you know, they only stand as tall as you, but it's the, the, you're the backbone of the family at that point. You come from being a 16, 17, 18 year old to where you're at 19 years old coming into the NBA. And then, you know, you're the breadwinner and you are not financially literate and you have all these people asking you for all these things and expectation is so high as well. And you've been famous since you were like 13, probably by that point, like people, the AAU yeah. games and people, people knew who you were before you could drive. I'm sure that must, I, I can't, I think most of us can't imagine the kind of pressure that goes along with that. And, and it makes me wonder like, does that seem normal because it's what you grew up with or did it just seem like what the hell is happening? It definitely is something that you never, I guess, truly get used to. But I think because I was exposed to it at such an early age that it just was became, you know, normal or something that my life was then accustomed to. But yeah, I think having all those eyes on me and absorbing and feeling a little bit of agoraphobia at the same time, like, okay, public embarrassment, I'm doing something wrong, or this person has their phone out. I got to, you know, at a restaurant, like watch what I'm, I'm doing, even though I wasn't doing anything wrong. I felt the, the anxieties of not being able to just be a kid, you know, cause I think there was so much, I even, you know, just went back to Portland, Oregon and uh, my AU coach from Portland in those days was telling my wife who knew nothing about the player that I was during that time, only the things that I told her saying, yeah, yeah, we were good, blah, blah, blah. But he said, you know, everybody treated Kevin like he was a a 25 year old when he was 14, 15 years old and he never got to live a normal life. So I think it was part of being a big fish in a small pond too, growing up right outside of Portland, Oregon. And I was the number one player in the country. There was a lot that came with that. There was a good amount of love, but maybe even more, you know, hate saying nobody makes it from here and, you know, where he's from, it's soft and, you know, but. Who does he think he is? Exactly. So I started asking myself, <laughs> I'm, I'm like, I'm like who guy. do I think I am? Right. <laughs> like that was, uh, I think that's something that, that imposter syndrome definitely goes through your head. Like I'm not deserving, uh, even though I'm willing to put in the work, like I'm not working hard enough. Who am I to think I did, you know, I'm going to make it here, but I don't know. I always had that. I think you know, it's a little bit of a gift and a curse having that, you know, anxiety drive you into some special things. I think on the other side of that, you know, it definitely is, can be a gift in, in, in some ways if you can harness it. You talk about this anxiety and this depression and the, the I think I'll just stay in bed thing from a very right. early age. Did people notice it? Like, do, did your siblings notice it? Did, did anybody say, hey, there's something going on with Kevin? I think my, my, 
yeah, family just has a like a disposition to melancholy. I don't. I think with on within my dad's side. I mean, you even go back to like, you know, Brian Wilson. I know that they said he you know was in bed for uh, you know years and years, but that's not actually the case. It was you know weeks and maybe weeks at a time, but you know, still he was you know he went through a lot of his you know mental illness and mental health problems, and you know, obviously everybody that that has paid attention to that knows the story about you know Eugene Landy and what. You know, happened there as well, and how he was his medicated. Doctor, right? His, yeah. Well, yeah, his pseudo doctor. Pseudo doctor. Doctor is a is a relative term. Yeah. <laughs> but no, and then I think on on my my dad's side, if you look back, you know, I'm sure that you can connect the dots there. But I think that yeah, I definitely caught some of that, and uh, it was inherent in me for sure. And I, I think that I, I did a really good job of, of, of hiding it. And I think, you know, sometimes you just have to fake it until you make it and just, you know, figure it out as you go. But man, I do wish that I could speak to my younger self and just say, Hey, listen, like it's, it's, it's okay to feel this way. Like fuck yeah. the stigma. There's my curse. It's coming. There you go. You know, fuck the stigma, just like live life outwardly and openly i wish it wouldn't have had to come to such a you know serious and public life moment and mental health moment for me and a moment of crisis to actually seek help and to 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 get therapy and try to you know write some some things in my my life or add up some things in my life that that weren't going in a positive direction are you technically by lineage considered a beach boy yourself <laughs> not not if you were talking about musical in- inclination absolutely not <laughs> is it like a british royal family thing <laughs> basically basically <laughs> okay. that was you know kind of the one thing one of the things i was alluding to early on was like that idea of fame i mean i looked at my uncle just as like oh that's that's just uncle mike it's my dad's brother but in in seeing that up close especially like in the early and mid nineties when I was like so susceptible to that stuff. And so young, I was born in 88 that it was pretty powerful to, to see that and to see what that meant for him, like being in the public eye, because I mean, the beach boys still hold weight. I mean, that's a very prominent name in in rock and roll history. And, you know, it wasn't until I went to UCLA where there, you know, people weren't like, Oh, you're, you're this big recruit that we just got. They're like, oh, you're Mike, Mike Love's nephew. Like all the parents were like, what are the Beach Boys coming? Is he coming right. to games? And I was oh like, my oh, God. He's, he's a very big deal. Coming up, Kevin Love has had a lot of very high profile achievements, star player on every level, all-star pick, NBA champion, but you cannot achieve your way out of depression. Hello, dreamers. This is Evelyn Denton, CEO of the only world-class, fully immersive theme resort, Steeplechase. You know, I've been seeing more and more reports on the blogs that our beloved park simply isn't safe anymore. Murdered them? I'm gonna wreck it. They say they got mugged by brigands in the fantasy kingdom of Ephemera, or hijacked by space pirates in Infinitum. I mean, I could have a knife. My papa said that I needed to do a crime. Friends, I'm here to reassure you that it's all part of the show. These criminals were really just overzealous staff trying to make things a little more magical for our guests. We're just as safe as we've always been. This isn't a county fair, dreamers. This is Steeplechase, the Adventure Zone. Every Thursday at MaximumFun.org. Back with Kevin Love of the NBA's Cleveland Cavaliers. You and I have talked a little bit in the past about this idea that often comes with a depressive tendency of, if I could just get to this next level, then, then I'm going (laughs) to, then I'm going to solve it. So you go on from, from high school onto UCLA, you were fifth overall pick in the draft when you got drafted. Yeah. And you know, lots of achievements at a very early age. You were what, 19 or so when you got drafted, I would think. 19. Yep. Played my first game at 20, but yeah, drafted at 19. Jeez. And so, like, did you think along all those steps through through college, through the draft, through, you know, the pros, that you were going to get to a point where this was all going to go away because you'll have succeeded enough? Yes. But it's funny, you know, it's funny you bring that up. I've, I spoke about that 
again, I, I think I, I just mentioned that about my AU coach was I was just in Portland. I was looking up on stage and you're talking about the idea of achieving yourself out of depression. That's what I loved about your book was I'm like, he gets it. Like, this is exactly <laughs> yeah. what I've been trying to like, I, I, it's like word vomit, but I can't, I can't articulate it in a way that, you know, like somebody's understanding. I'm like, why is it just not ever good enough? Or why do I regret so much? Right. But it, for me, even last week it happened. And I was talking about it earlier today. Last week, I'm looking up on stage and it's the, you know, global director of Nike basketball, Lynn Merritt, who's like a, a mentor to me. We call him the general. And then it's it's LeBron, it's Gary Payton, it's Scottie Pippen. It's Bo Jackson, it's Ken Griffey Jr. and Charles Barkley, and they're all up there. And they're the the way that they're speaking and the and you know kind of the things that they're being super vulnerable about and peeling back. I I spoke to a, a near and dear friend of mine that that works at Nike and was sitting right next to me. I'm like, man, I'm, my heart's actually broken like for myself right now because of the exact same thing that we're talking about here. I'm like, man, I I look back and. You know, I, I I wished away a couple moments of my time in the NBA. You know, there were times where I was so dark and so depressed where I almost like was considering retiring. I had this conversation with Giannis actually this summer. And there was moments where I was so worked up. I didn't want to outwardly face 22,000 fans like, you know, night after night. It was like exhausting having to play this character and... I was expected because, you know, I was making this money and I was successful that I was just going to be happy and that I thought to myself, you know what, I have to show up because if I just get that next accolade, if I just hit that next milestone, if I just get that next contract, if I just do this and this and this and this, but then it just kind of, you know, you said it in the book too, you're like, you're just left with the brain you still have, right? Like yeah. you're still at the end of the day, yeah, you can achieve that, but you know, it's it's fast fleeting because the brain is set up to try to reach for the yes. next thing, right? And if there's it's that a dangling and, carrot, right? Like you yeah. just you just keep reaching, you keep, and I, I think again, it's a gift and a curse in that way. But the idea of like reflection to me on the other side of that, like looking back and giving myself a pat on the back wasn't something that I would even consider because then I'm like, I'm complacent. I'm, I'm never going to get there. I'm, then I'm never going to be happy. This moving target of happiness is 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 forever going to be miles and miles and miles away. It's like a yeah. never-ending you know, triathlon that I'm putting myself through. One time I was at the Target Center. This was your rookie year. I was doing a story for some radio thing and I left the Target Center and I walked by where the players parked their cars and you were getting out of your car. And I look, I, I kind of looked at you and I was like, oh my God, that's Kevin Love. And I smiled and you smiled back and I saw such fear in your eyes. It's always stayed with me. So right. it's the one other time that we've met Kevin. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So we're, yeah, we were in a target. That was back when they had the old, like you just pull in there and it was- Pulling right in front of the building the there. Yeah, exactly. Probably like the worst- parking yeah. set up in the league at the time but now it's target center is beautiful now yeah i mean maybe you had just eaten a bad muffin or something maybe that's all it was but yeah, i just remember thinking at I the hope... time i was a few pounds over over <laughs> what i am just, now i just remember thinking i hope that guy's okay yeah and you were in minnesota as a rookie how long how many years were, did you play in minnesota six years yeah and that's when i mean we're going to talk about the panic attacks you know that kind of led to your being very public about mental health but it seems like the darkest times you went through were your years in Minnesota. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I definitely that, yeah, year that my grandma, I think it was 2012, 2013. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, I know because it was the year that we come off the summer of the, of the Olympics and heading into to that year, I broke my, I only played 18 games that year. So like my safe space and, and basketball was, was taken away from me, but definitely you know, being 19 years old and not having any tools and not, you know, I had to feel like, I felt like hiding this was the best route to go because I didn't know anything else. It was definitely a fear-induced, highly stressful time for me that I think, again, I have gray hair now, but I think it definitely 
aged me in a way that as an athlete, you don't want to be, you know, aged. Here I am going into my 15th season, but still, I think it, it was a weight on my shoulders that I guess at, at, at some capacity didn't need to be there. It didn't need to be that heavy, you know? Yeah. How bad did it get? Oh, it got bad. It got, you know, I think suicidal ideation definitely creeps in. Um, and you start thinking to yourself, I mean, the question, you know, I asked her in that time is like, how's, you know, what's the only way to make it stop, you know, completely stop. There's ways to mute it. There's ways to, you know, feel like you've had a couple of glasses of wine, if you will. But I think that's, that's self-medicating, self-sabotaging. And, you know, I don't think that's, that's healthy for anybody, but I think you get such blinders on that you just don't give a shit, you know? You're just like, I just want this to, to stop in whatever way that I can do it, or maybe the easiest way, everybody wants a quick fix, right? That I'll just do this. You talked about playing being your safe space. Mm -hmm. When you're on the court, and I've heard, I've heard especially basketball players talk about this, you know, when you kind of get into the zone, is that where the anxiety and the depression goes away and you're just doing this beautiful dance of basketball? That's it. It is a beautiful dance. And I think that's always where I've just gone. And I think it's, it's like really fun to be, you know, really good at something. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, it just being in my blood, as you mentioned, my, my, my father playing and then being named after a famous basketball player, while that, you know, definitely adds some complexity to the whole situation that it also makes it super fun to 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 chase that and it just ha so happened that I grew up loving the game. I loved being around a basketball, a basketball court, you know, the way that, you know, you can walk into a gym and feel the energy, you can, you know, the smell of the leather on the basketball, the squeaking of the shoes, you know, a sweaty jersey, like, you know, taking a little elbow but being like, "Hey, it felt hurt so good." There's so many <laughs> things that add to it on top of the the competition i think it's yeah it's the fans being a fan first for me before i even really started playing organized basketball to you know the bright lights the stage and i think yeah there still is that like nervous energy to it but that was always like you know that was always the safe space for me that that kept me coming back for more it was almost like a drug in that way so did you start to feel better mentally when when you got over some of those injuries that limited you to 18 games a year, did that pull you out of it? Or was it going to Cleveland that, that pulled you out of it? Uh, I think or it did was, you get pulled out of it at all? <laughs> yeah, no, I think yes and no. I, I, I was kind of smir laughing there, kind of smirking because I never really got pulled out of it until, you know, I would say, yeah, the seventh at the end of the 17, 18 season. And trust me, it got a lot worse before uh, it got better. But I think, coming out of that 18 game season in 2012 and 2012-13 season that I had a lot to prove and I've always loved that idea of being the chaser. I you know being at the top and and being chased is one thing but to actually you know be the hunter that to me is is definitely the the most the most fun and and to like prove yourself to to prove yeah, that you belong. Okay. Yeah, prove that I belong. I feel like I've always had that chip on my shoulder and always, you know, had to do that. And I think, again, that has something to do with like that, you know, nervous energy that I have to be this and I have to make it and I have to achieve. But I think on the other side of that, it's, you know, I'm still doing it on the basketball court, which I lose sight of quite often. So that's interesting. I mean, we talked about this idea, if I can just get to this next thing, then I'll be happy. And then, yeah. you know, you get there. But then you also talk about the pursuit of the striving and the trying yeah. to trying to prove yourself as being a good thing. So yeah. is it a matter of just trying to establish this recognition that you that you do have worth all along in order for that to be a positive result? You know what? If you have the answer, please tell me. <laughs> I think, I've done yeah, 75 I mean, episodes of this show trying to find it. I'll let you know. No doubt. Yeah. I mean, maybe, you know, maybe 76. But <laughs> I honestly, you know, it's, I think the beauty is, I mean, it's, we were joking about it before we came on. It's like those little hiccups in your interviews. And like, I just made a best man speech at my, my best friend from growing up his wedding. And I'm like telling everybody that's speaking, I'm like, Listen, just because like it's me up there speaking, like 
I'm going to mess up. I'm going to, you know, something's going to happen. But like that's in that like journey of, of, of you speaking, it humanizes you and like puts you, you know, in a beautiful space where like those, those little intrinsical things along the way, along the journey that were, were hiccups or a uh, bump in the road, uh, good or bad. I mean, I think that's where like the, the beauty and the, the satisfaction lies because actually like when you get to the end, you're like, with those things, especially like, okay, that wasn't so bad. But even when you, you know, achieve something, it's so much better when you are doing it for something just greater than just yourself. Cause for you, it's kind of like, I'm not saying it's narcissistic, but it's very, it's only affecting really, you know, one person and like for your vanity or your sanity, like it's kind of definitely unfair to yourself, but it was all those, you're like, damn it. I'm so glad that I work so hard but then you're like, okay, what's next? I can have like one. It's, I always say this. I'm like, you have one good game in the NBA and you let that, you have another game either 48 hours or the next day. So like you get to enjoy it for a night or the next night. You have one bad game and the next two weeks are ruined. You carry it with you. You know yeah. what I mean? You carry the losses with you so much more. So I think it's, again, I think the hardest, two hardest things in life are like to to just be present and also stay balanced like those two things are so hard to do and and to that point of what i just spoke about like you know i had to find balance and like okay there's going to be wins and losses there's there's lessons in in all of those and also like stay present like understand that like you can either beat yourself up and it's again like i said earlier gonna gonna age the shit out of you or you can say hey listen i'm i'm I've been around this league long enough now. I'm 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 going to be okay. I'm going to land on my feet, but again, we'll not, we'll have another opportunity tomorrow. So I think it's all uh, again in 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 how you look at it and and understanding yourself in that way. Coming up, the game that changed everything for Kevin Love. His mental health crashes and he finally gets some help. Since the dawn of time, man has dreamed of bringing life back from the dead. From Orpheus and Eurydice to Frankenstein's monster, resurrection has long been merely the stuff of myth, fiction, and fairy tale. Until now. Actually, we still can't bring people back from the dead. That would be crazy, but the Dead Pilot Society podcast has found a way to resurrect great dead comedy pilots from Hollywood's finest writers. Every month, Dead Pilot Society brings you a reading of a comedy pilot that was sold and developed but never produced, performed by the funniest actors from film and television. How does Dead Pilot Society achieve this miracle? The answer can only be found at MaximumFun.org. back with NBA veteran Kevin Love of the Cleveland Cavaliers. In just a bit, we'll hear about the Kevin Love Fund and an education initiative he's helping to bring to schools. We talked about being in Minnesota in some dark times, and it became a much more public thing when when you had a panic attack mm -hmm. in a game against Atlanta. And I guess it became even more public when you when you opened up to the entire world about it. But um, sure. tell us how that went down. You've you've played, you know, tons and tons of games by the time this game takes place. What happened in that game against the Hawks? Yeah, I mean, I think it must have been almost I don't know if it was like seven hundred games. Yeah, I'd already played professionally as well as like 20 at that point two three plus years of organized basketball most of your life yeah most of my life and i'd never had a public moment like that and i think you know i i always say it was like all the pillars in my life had kind of toppled over and and gone to shit and the last one was basketball and we had all expectation all the expectation in the world we had like traded a few guys on our team, Kyrie Irving being the primary superstar player that we that we traded, but also in return had, you know, guys like Derrick Rose. We had Dwayne Wade on our team. We added Isaiah Thomas, a couple, you know, a few more players that we were still not only expected to make the finals, but maybe win the NBA championship. So, you know, we go into the season with very high expectations in 17, 18. And again, my 
professional, personal, family life is not in a good place. Let's just leave it at that. Yeah. So this is a situation where if you win, it's just what you're supposed to do. You don't get any credit. And if Correct. you lose, how could you lose when you right. got and, and LeBron was on that team too, right? Yeah, he certainly was. He's pretty yeah. good at basketball. He's he's all right. Yeah. No, he's yeah. Phenomenal. <laughs> and that's why again the expectation was we were we were saying why wouldn't they go to the NBA finals and and you know beat the Warriors or or compete with the Warriors. So I think we start out the season like I don't know. You can look back like maybe like three and seven, and we're losing to the Hawks, who, yeah, two years prior to that were you know a top few seed in the Eastern Conference, but we're losing to them at halftime. Seems like things are going you know very very wrong. You know I'm I'm stressed out, high 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 anxiety. I think we're getting beat by maybe double digits going into halftime and. Untreated anxiety, really, at this point, yeah. too, right? No, for yeah. sure. Untreated and something Ugh. that I was just like, this is just life. This is just what I'm going to have to uh, live with and deal with. So I better come to terms with it. But it got to a point, yeah, where right after halftime, we had called the first time out. They probably scored a couple straight baskets. Atlanta did. And that's when I just felt my heart rate just, you know, go from just over 100 to, you know, I felt like 200. Oh my God. 180 or 190, whatever my max is, you know, like I just, my heart started beating. I couldn't catch my breath. I'm th- I feel like I'm having a cardiac type episode. I tell him, my coach starts talking to me. I remove myself from the huddle. He comes over like, what the hell is wrong? And then I just bail to the, to the locker room. I'm like trying to find a place where I can either lay down. I don't know what the hell I'm looking for. I'm like, is this it? <laughs> I'm like, what the yeah, fuck? do I die yeah. on the coin? This is game, it. Where do yeah. I want to be seen? You know, am I pulling the uh the shirt over my face like Caesar did so they can't see my last face? Uh <laughs> but I end up on the uh the floor of my of our head athletic trainer's office uh and just have yeah, full blown attack right there and um, and I imagine you didn't know what a panic attack was at that point. You know, it's, it's, I, I think because I'd always had a, somewhere to remove myself and always someplace to go or like it manifested in like rage, rage and like a lot of pillows were screamed into and broken and ripped apart. Mm. And in my, in my youth within my, my bedroom, that this was something more than that because I didn't have any place to escape and go to when it got right. to that breaking point. So I'm like, you know, fighting for air in my lungs. I'm trying, I feel like I'm trying to get something out of my throat. I can't, you know, my, 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 I really feel like I'm, I'm having like my left side is breaking down. I'm having this like heart attack. And then I go to the Cleveland Clinic after and which is a world renowned hospital, especially great heart hospital as well. When it comes to, taking care of that and for me that i just completely checked out I, I we ran every test in the world and it all came back clear i'm a healthy athlete and you know get your cholesterol down now uh but it just kind of hit me square in the face like what the hell just happened if everything checked out what the hell just happened so that was again i, I think there was a scary moment of it happening publicly and how it all went down and then on the other side of that it's like well what if this happens again and also did my teammates see and the fear of you know is the organization going to trust me is this going to affect affect my happy place is this going to affect my you know being able to you know play basketball or take care of my family and so on and so forth so i think it was that that never ending you know vicious cycle so you go to the Cleveland Clinic, you learn about panic attacks and how they feel like impending death. Do you get treatment at that point? Like you're yet to go public about this stuff. Like, do you get to a therapist? Do you get to a doctor? What do you do? With Within 48 hours, and I want to say this, like this isn't normal. Within 48 hours, I had seen my first therapist. I just looked in the mirror and I'm like, you know what? If you don't do this then what's the point? Like, you know, so I think, yeah, it was within 48 hours. I remember we had like a two day break or a three day break. And then we played Milwaukee and I was very fortunate. I was saying this, this isn't something that 
always happens. It's like changing a, uh, I always say like changing a college major, like your first person that you meet with and the first therapist that you meet with is actually the one that you end up staying with and, and really, you know, vibe with and, or somebody is somebody that you can, you can lean on in, in, in moments. So I just went all in and it has been the best or one of very, very much at the top, the best thing that I've done for myself and it it i can't even i don't even know if i can say i i i did it for myself it was something that i don't know just ended up working out in that way if you will so question i gotta ask a lot of people listening to this uh don't make quite as much money at their jobs (laughs) as you do and a lot of people think if i was getting nearly 29 million dollars this year to play basketball or do anything I would smile and feel great all day long. Uh, How do you respond to that? Well, I think I mentioned Brian Cranston earlier. He had a great saying after Anthony Bourdain had taken his life. He said, it just shows you that. And for that matter, Kate Spade within the same, I think, two week span, uh, because she thought it would, you know, hurt her image if people knew about this, that success is not immune to depression. I use that all the time. And it made me, it normalized it for me as well. Because like, you know, if I could just, what, inject cash into my arm, like it's all going to be better. Like, all right. Just buy some new mental health. Yeah, forget the psychedelics or the SSRIs or like, you know, these beautiful things that I can do to help my mental health. I'll just inject liquid cash into my (laughs) arms and I'll be fine. No, but, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that, you know, that, that doesn't, help. I mean, my relationship with money has always been pretty fucked up, uh, from stemming way, way, way back. Um, again, the ticket out. Right. But, right, um, right. it'll solve everything. Yeah. It'll solve everything. But, uh, you know, it's, there's like these amazing, you know, uh, three by three photos where you look at like, you know, it's Richard Pryor, it's, it's Robin Williams, mm-hmm. it's Anthony Bourdain. It's like all these people that you know, Amy Winehouse, Kurt Cobain, like all these people that, you know, are in the public eye who have world fame, who have legacy, like, I mean, generational wealth in some cases with money. And yet, you know, these are people that have all died from either taking their lives or a product of, you know, opioid addiction or, you know, just it's, I think it's just in a lot of ways ignorant. I mean, like I would just hope they would have an, open mind and understand that this doesn't discriminate. And just because you have a currency and honestly, not the only currency that matters, that it's not something that if you're just injected with it, that you're going to be okay. Like, it's just not the money. I mean, it's not going to solve everything. And sure, does it it give you some freedom? Does it allow you access? Absolutely. But again, like I said, it's just not the only currency that matters. And those people that I mentioned, you know, are proof of that. Yeah. Yeah. I've been interviewing people a long time and I I found that it was pretty easy to get comedians to talk about mental health. That's a big reason why I did what I did. Oh, how, how funny. By the way, that is so spot on, by the way. I mean, it's like, I think it, a lot of that comes from the dark, side of the personality (laughs) yeah yeah but but i found that it's a lot harder historically to get athletes to talk about it because there's really nothing to gain especially if they're in a situation where they're trying to get another contract and they're trying to trying to appear invulnerable and you know like they have everything to lose and nothing to gain from being open about mental health why why do you do it when you have you know when when you're a professional athlete why open up about this stuff why be vulnerable about this why do you take your story public well two things one being funny and one being um pretty serious the first being funny i'll say that like i always say like listen at the end of the day yes i i do expose this stuff some of you might think it's soft some of you might think like i throw up these photos with my dog who acts as like a weighted blanket and that's soft or things but like at the end of the day if you want to get on the court and try me like let's fucking do this like (laughs) i'm still the same person like yeah (laughs) exactly yeah. like and it's like crash the boards with kevin love and find that's out what i'm, that's what I'm saying like <laughs> listen like 
I'm still me at the end of the day. If anything, I'm a better version of myself. So on the other side of that, the the serious answer is like, for me, it was paying it forward. I found in my life, like giving myself up for, you know, something bigger than myself actually makes me feel really good. Um, I hate receiving gifts, but I'm a good gift giver. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, my wife would tell me I'm the worst gift receiver of all time. But <laughs> I think it's, you know, just paying it forward for a, a kid who may have, or someone, it doesn't even have to be a kid. It can be anybody struggling that has, you know, felt the same way I've felt at times. And still like I live with it. I feel it right now. I have still have my, my medication and it, and it definitely, trust me, helps and has helped save my life, but still feel it every single day. But again, changed my relationship with it. But I, it, it's, I, I decided to, speak about it publicly for just that like one and hopefully many that are again or have felt or feeling the same way that that i've felt before because it's not it's not first of all not healthy but it's just not you know what kind of life is that to be lived especially when it's in the shadows and you don't feel like you can share it right Big, exciting times for the Kevin Love Fund and social emotional learning curriculum. Tell us, yes, uh, tell us what you're. I know there's, there's acronym opportunities. Tell us, uh, tell us what you've been announcing. Yeah, the uh, SEL curriculum, if you will. We've been working on this for a couple of years. It's modeling vulnerability within the classroom. People ask me all the time, you know, what would you say to your younger self? And for me, it was. You know, speak your truth, especially around your peers, not have to go down the hallway to see a counselor and not have to go down the hallway to see a principal, vice principal, if you will, or even go outside the school, be able to share and, and be vulnerable with your peers in the classroom and, you know, be able to kind of learn on the fly with that. But it's not only, you know, lesson programs, which we have 14 of through several different mediums. It can be photography, it can be you know, making playlists. It can be like, I wrote a first person poem about my, my late grandmother that was super therapeutic for me, but it's also teaching them tools that they walk away from the classroom and and understand how they can best benefit themselves, but also the people around them, the community around them and create a better culture and more hope for, you know, the people that are in their everyday lives and have a ripple effect on everybody else. As you know, that happens when you, you know, take care of number one, you take care of yourself. I think for a lot of a lot of young people, the idea of being vulnerable in school is a fairly terrifying proposition. Even though True. there are some w- wonderful rewards if you do that, how how do you how do you make it a safe environment for for younger people so that they're they're confident in doing this so that they can get those rewards you're talking about? Well, it all starts with the teacher. I mean, we have put in our our teachers that have and our people that have helped make the the curriculum. I've really done a great job of, of you know, helping our teachers get, get through the understanding of the curriculum and the process of, you know, making sure that they're, they're well-equipped to best service the students. So I think, you know, it's funny, we've seen a lot, I've seen it firsthand actually in Cleveland, physically in the classroom, how much of an impact those teachers actually have on their students. So I think it starts from a empathetic authority figure type of standpoint and has that ripple effect through all of the kids. You know, there was one very emotional moment at John Adams High School in Cleveland where a young lady who was sitting just a few seats down, I was the first one to, you know, share my poem and something that I had done, like I mentioned about my grandmother, but she had spoken about the teacher and how her willingness to give herself up as well as just be so instrumental in the lesson program and, and her sharing, the young lady sharing her story was so huge. So I think it's, it all starts with, you know, definitely, you know, somebody else sharing the lesson plan. Like we've had Chris Ball, we've had Brian Cranston, we have, we've had others, you know, whether they're like a person that's a, not only a, a celebrity or somebody within the public eye, but other peers or different groups of people that, you know, fosters, you know, a sense of not only awareness, but empathy and a safe space more than anything within the classroom. So it is a daunting task. We thought, you know, to ourselves, kind of how are we going to make this work? But we've seen incredible results. And it's, as of now, been in 250 schools and over 10,000 students. And it's going to be nationwide for free come October. It's beautiful.
That's Kevin Love. I'm rooting for him. I'm rooting for the Cleveland Cavaliers in general this year because they have a lot of guys on their team who are regarded around the league as interesting and extra nice and often kind of funny and weird. Robin Lopez signed with Cleveland, and he's known for staging mock wrestling matches against other teams' mascots and being good at basketball. But the mascot thing is pretty awesome. We have a video of it on our show page. It has nothing to do with mental health and very little to do with basketball, but you get to see a guy who looks like a tall, buff, sideshow Bob beat up a Velociraptor mascot, which is kind of awesome. Next time on Depression Mode, Rishi wanted to write more songs, but there were these voices in his head telling them that he sucked really bad. And the thing about those voices is that they were very talented. They're very smart and have such great reasoning. It's hard to really go against them. Hear all the reasons that they lay out for why I am a no-talent hack, and I'm like, mm, that's, yeah, I'm convinced. Rishikesh Hirway, creator and host of Song Exploder, joins us. And everybody take a breath and then let the breath out. And as the breath comes out, Laura House comes in. Hi, Laura. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Laura joins us for a meditation moment. That's like my Lenny and Squiggy entrance. <laughs> Hello. And the breath and the breath comes in. Hello. <laughs> oh man, those guys were awesome. The best. Yeah. Well, uh, guide us, won't you, in a meditation moment? Yes, of course. This is available anytime. You could just check out a little with some Free of meditation. Charge. Free of charge. It's no, right there. No online registration needed. No commute. It's right there in <laughs> you at any moment. So uh, the hard part is this, making yourself do it. So you just get comfortable in a seat. You want to be able to close your eyes safely. No driving. Start with your head upright and just close your eyes. Just close your eyes and be comfortable for a moment. And then notice your breath might be the first time today or in a while, but just notice it. It's happening. There's no forcing or controlling. And you will have thoughts and your mind will naturally go from noticing your breath into getting really interested in your thoughts. Totally okay. But when you're aware of it, you just notice your breath again, sort of glancing in the direction of your breath. Just let go. Go ahead and open your eyes. I think of it sometimes as throwing up little detour signs. Mm -hmm. Like if my, my mind is like, oh, but I have things to worry about and I there's stuff I have to do later. It's like, no, oh, back to the, oh, just, oh, yeah. breath. Like <laughs> it's not a to-do list. It's like, right. oh, okay. It's just a pause button and you'll, mm -hmm. you know, you can get to that stuff later. You can, you can spare a moment or two to do something yeah. like this. You can find Laura House at laurahouse.com. You can also find her on the Tiny Victories podcast here on Maximum Fun that she hosts with Annabelle Gerwich. Laura, thank you. Thank you. If people support our show, we get to have a show. If they don't, we don't. Let's have a show, shall we? If you already donate to Depression Mode, thank you. You make this show possible. If you haven't yet, it's so easy. Just go to MaximumFun.org slash join. Select Depression Mode. Find a level that works for you. There's all kinds of levels. And help us out. Be sure to hit subscribe and give us five stars and write good reviews. That makes our show show up more on the various podcast platforms. And, and that's a good thing. The Suicide and Crisis Lifeline is available in the United States by calling 988 or 1-800-273-TALK. 
The Crisis Text Line, also free, always available. Text HOME to 741-741. The Hilarious World of Depression, the book is now available as of tomorrow, actually, the day after this podcast drops. Maybe you don't listen on the same day the podcast drops. Maybe you listen a day later, at which point the book will already be out there in the world. I hope you read it. It's a memoir that I wrote about mental health and uh, various celebrities join in to talk about their experiences. And there are a lot of jokes and uh, it seems to have helped a lot of people. Now available in paperback where books are sold because it's a book. Our electric mail address is depressionmode at maximumfun.org. If you're on Facebook, look up our mental health discussion group, Preshies. Lots of good conversation going on there. Not just about the show, but about mental health, people helping other people. It's kind of the platonic ideal of what Facebook ought to be. Our Depression Mode newsletter is available on Substack. Search that up. I'm on Twitter, at John Moe. Hi, Credits listeners. The Cleveland Cavaliers haven't always been my favorite team, but I've always loved their name. Cavalier can mean showing a lack of proper concern. So like if a player doesn't go after a rebound or fails to defend, thus taking a cavalier attitude, well, you know, what can you expect, given the name? Cavalier can also mean a supporter of King Charles I in the English Civil War of 1642, which I'm sure applies to Kevin Love. Depression Mode is produced by Gabe Mara. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson, and we get booking help from Mara Davis. Rhett Miller wrote and performed our theme song, Building Wings. I'm always falling off of cliffs now Building wings on the way down I am figuring things out Building wings, building wings, building wings No one knows the reason Maybe there's no reason I just keep believing No one knows the answer Maybe there's no answer I just keep on dancing Hey, this is Jesus from Long Beach Hang in there You're stronger than you think. Depression Mode is a production of Maximum Fun and Papa Chick. I'm John Moe. Bye now. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.